Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Okay, ready? <laughs> so as I, as I said, we'll talk a bit about enlightenment um, this week and, uh, and next week at least. And the, talked a few, uh, a couple of months ago uh, on this after the uh, Inquiring Mind came out. And I really uh, highly recommend checking out the Inquiring Mind. Mm, I'm reminded of a, of a line that says, uh, one who knows doesn't speak and one who speaks doesn't know. So um, I share this with that <laughs> humble <laughs> disclaimer. It's such a, a powerful word, enlightenment. I think I, when I spoke a few months ago, I, I asked people, just what that word evokes in them. And for some, it can be extremely inspiring, and for others, it can seem like some fairy tale or remote, uh, unattainable um, experience. You might find a, a word, a synonym, if enlightenment seems so far removed for you, that really does inspire you or connect with you. Often uh, the word uh, awakening uh, is, it resonates with, with people, or liberation, or freedom. And there are many different descriptions and approaches, as uh, we explored a bit in that previous talk, and some of them are explored in, in the mind issue. Jack has a, Jack Hornfield has a, a really great opening um, piece that kind of uh, gives a little bit of a lay of the land. Um, just for information, for the, if there are books that you're interested in, uh, to explore besides the inquiring mind, um, Joseph Goldstein's book One Dharma, really excellent. Seeing the the different viewpoints and different approaches, um, and talking about uh, culminating in his chapter on Nirvana. Um, there's a book by Ajahn Amaro uh, called Small Boat, Great Mountain. Uh, Theravadan Reflections on the Natural Great Perfection. And again, he's talking about, this is when he did a, uh, he co-taught with Sokni Rinpoche, great Tibetan teacher, um, and uh, was, was talking from the Theravadan perspective. Theravadan is the, the practice that, uh, that we teach, that I teach, or the lineage out of which uh, the practice that I, I share and that we teach at, at Spirit Rock. Um, so looking at the Tibetan 
view of awakening from a Theravadan uh, perspective. Um, here's a really good book, Natural Great Perfection by Nyoshal Kempo and uh, Surya Das. Also, Ajahn Amaro has a, a, a quite extraordinary book that he wrote with Ajahn Pasano called The Island, uh, which is actually the one of the two books that I hung out with when I, I did my recent sit at the Forest Refuge. Um, sometimes instead, I, they don't have Dharma talks each night, and uh, sometimes I just look at uh, at that book, The Island, which is is really um, the island is one phrase that the Buddha used for uh, nibbana, and it's got a beautiful compendium and exploration of the path of liberation from Theravadan viewpoint. So you might check that one out. So, and you, in, in Joseph's book on One Dharma, he, he, he talks about the different approaches to enlightenment. Uh, and there are many different views. That's the thing that it might be both confusing or liberating to some extent to see that nobody has a corner on this mysterious. Um, experience, um, uh, goal of practice for some, that there's, in, even in the Theravadan lineages, there's, uh, there's different ways that enlightenment is, is talked about as far as how to get to that, open up to it, and what the experience is. And then you look at the Tibetan uh, and the uh, the Zen approaches, and again, very different um, views and expressions. And then there's the non-Buddhist expressions of enlightenment. It's not that you have to be Buddhist to be free. For me, as many of you have heard me talk about uh, Neem Karoli Baba from Ramdas's books, also known as Maharaji. He seemed pretty free. To me, he seemed as free as I can conceive of somebody being, other than the Buddha, which is kind of like there's this archetype in there. But um, you know, Maharaji was pretty free, as Ramana Maharshi or Ramakrishna. And so there's all kinds of ways to point to this um, indescribable um, perspective or experience. All have in common one thing, and that is penetrating, seeing through the illusion of who we think we are. Cutting through this mistaken perspective that we are separate from the rest of life and that there is an abiding entity here to whom life is happening. Seeing through that, not just here, you could read about it in a book and you can even say, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, I think I got it. 
which is beautiful if you read about it and it touches you in a place that feels so authentic. But to feel it from the inside, to, have, to embody it, to have a deep experiential understanding of it, uh, that shifts one's reality and one's relationship to, um, to everyone around and to the world. So it's getting beyond this, this world of form to something deeper than, um, than the form that seems to be held together. In the, in the Four Noble Truths that, that holds this body and mind together, in the, the Four Noble Truths, the Third Noble Truth is the end of suffering, which is what the Buddha was pointing to, uh, this freedom, this complete freedom from suffering. Liberation through non-clinging. As you perhaps know, the first noble truth, there is suffering. Second noble truth, the cause of suffering is attachment. The third noble truth, the, lib- the, the true liberation, the end of suffering, if the cause of suffering is holding on, the end of suffering is all about letting go, non-clinging. There's a, a famous passage that by the Buddha, he says, the essence of this is nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. That's really the heart of it. My body, my mind, my drama, my whatever. If you can just remove the my or the I and see what's here without that, that's kind of pointing to that experience. So, as I say, there are a number of different models, and I thought tonight I would just start with the classic, or one classic, Theravadan model uh, from uh, the, the Burmese tradition, which uses both the suttas, the discourses of the Buddha, and also the commentaries that came after the Buddha uh, about um, uh, the fifth century or so, there was a, a, an extraordinary monk named Buddha Gosa who wrote this huge compendium of commentaries on the discourses, which is called the Visuddhi Magga, or Path of Purification. Magga is path of purification. And that has become a, a kind of uh, text for many meditative approaches of how this process works. It's a pretty thick book. I was going to bring it, and then I thought, no, what's the point of bringing it? It's like this, and it's, it's got two main parts, concentration, tranquility, and insight. And it's, it's like a, a map of, or a recipe. This is how you do it. Now, a number of great masters don't take the Visuddhi Magga as the, uh, as the true words of the Buddha. So you have to you see there's 
again, lots of different perspectives. But um, I wanted to bring, uh, share with you a bit of the classic one that this map, there is something to it that many people go through, but not everybody, even, even those who have deep understanding and awakening. So it's kind of, you know, you might say, well, gee, you know, I know something has happened to me, but it doesn't fit that map. You know, it, it's, there's no way of, of knowing, you know, it's not like, oh, okay, I got through that checklist, I did it right. But it is a map that is, um, that many people seem to go through. And it involves certain, um, what's called the progress of insight, leading to different stages of enlightenment. So this is just one, one schema uh, that we'll, we'll share tonight. How many people, anyone familiar with the progress of insight? And in uh, in some some meditation centers, this is very much the map that they they go by. And stages of enlightenment, they although it's said that only a Buddha can really know where somebody is at. Uh, there can be signs that uh, that so that somebody has experienced a, a particular uh, stage of enlightenment, mm. but it's not foolproof. And I want to share with you one story of um, one uh, meditation teacher um, from Germany. I haven't seen him in years. Uh, his name was is Vimolo, and he practiced. You know Vimolo. You know Vimolo. And he practiced in uh, uh, in Mahasi Sayadaw Center um, in in Burma in Rangoon, and um, very good yogi, very deep practice. And he was he was such a good yogi. And at some point in those days, they don't do this anymore, but they used to give certificates. <laughs> and he got his certificate. He got his diploma. You have attained the first stage of enlightenment. <clears throat> it's a little bit tricky. Imagine, did I get my diploma or not? But what he shared in, in his, his story was that after getting that, a few years later, as I recall, he was riding on the back of a truck. He had what he knew incontrovertibly to be what the certificate had purported telling him he had gotten. So you can take the certificate and certification with a grain of salt um, or else frame it one or the other. So this um, one other thing there are Great masters, truly wise beings, wise teachers, who seem to have experienced very deep wisdom, 
who then go ahead and do the stupidest things, who can, through their own confusion, hurt students or be um, unskillful with money or with power or in some way or another. We probably all know these stories you know, of Roshis or Rinpoches or um, whoever. And yet they've touched something truly profound that has made people want to sit at their feet and listen to them. So it's a little tricky, too. How does that happen? In one model, once, you, once you've experienced the first stage of enlightenment, it's said that it's impossible to break a precept. I take that with a grain of salt also because, as I say, these great masters who then go ahead and get confused and do, do something out of their confusion, not so skillful. So I am uh, much of the school uh, that Jack mentions in his article that Suzuki Roshi uh, talked about. Rather than there being enlightened people, enlightened beings, there is enlightened activity that at times when we see through the game, we're not around and what's coming through is an expression of the enlightened awakened mind. But there's no necessary guarantee that that sense of self doesn't come back and uh, we can stay uh, lose lose track of things. Uh, this as a, as a, an example of this, you know, as I mentioned, um, Ramdas is a very was is a, a real major inspiration and teacher uh, for me. He has a new book out, "Be Love Now," and "Be Here Now" changed a generation. It really it changed my life, and. What that book came from was he was channeling in a very pure way, very high dharma. And then, and he talks about this a lot. Then people would come to him expecting that that's how he is all the time. And he'd say, you know, I could, he, he could be a curmudgeon, at least in the old days. You know, these days I think he's, uh, he's, he's really reached a whole other level of, of, of being. But they would be so discouraged that he, he wasn't this pure being all the time. But there was enlightened activity that was moving through him and that we can all uh, experience from time to time. So this, first I'll talk a little bit about the progress of insight and then the different stages of enlightenment that uh, or the fruition of it. And again, you can probably Google this, uh, uh, the progress of insight, or the path of purification. Uh, Mahasi Sayadaw has, a, has, a, uh, has a, a treatise, The Progress of Insight. And this is from a meditative approach. The, the, this this um, lineage 
this body of teachings is particular, particular to those who are into meditation practice. Okay. And again, it's not the only way to get enlightened. Actually, in the, in this, in the Pali Canon, there are many more instances of people listening to the Buddha and hearing a discourse and at the end becoming awakened. Let me know if anything happens tonight. <laughs> um, but you don't have to do it through meditation. But this is, this is like the map for meditation in this particular approach. So as you're practicing, um, the, the first, the foundation of this path is the purification of conduct. Through purification of conduct, which is really taking on in earnest um, virtue and morality as the a basis of your practice. You know, in the in the eightfold path, wise speech, action, and livelihood are the foundation for um, the developing of the mind through meditation and the flowering of wisdom. So purification of conduct, this is something we can all do. He says it is a prerequisite to real freedom because if you're going around ripping people off or doing unskillful things, um, it's very hard to come to a deep inner peace that allows you to penetrate the normal uh, waking consciousness that most of us are lost in. So through that purification of, of conduct, taking that on, then the next um, step is what's called purification of mind. And that is as you practice when you're meditating, um, if you're If your heart is free of remorse and confusion, it's easier to settle down the mind and it's easier to concentrate the mind. The Buddha did talk about concentration as a very uh, important component of seeing, penetrating through the, the dream that most of us are living in. If you go on a retreat, say at Spirit Rock, we start out by taking precepts and creating a safe environment. And just for that, those days, becoming a monastery where there's, where there's, uh, we don't need to fear others or fear our own actions because there's a kind of protection that comes from taking the precepts. And then we start to, cultivate mindfulness, and in some cases, a concentrated mindfulness, moment-to-moment concentration, or directly focusing the mind in a concentrated way. And in that, the hindrances, probably many of you are familiar with the hindrances, the five hindrances of uh, attachment, aversion, uh, sleepiness, sloth and torpor, restlessness, and doubt, those which usually confuse us. Oh, I want that. I don't want that. Oh, I don't, you know, what's going to do it for me? When that starts getting suppressed, 
or when the hindrances aren't at, 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 bay, or at bay and are not operating, it's like, oh, it's so much easier to see clearly. And so, and concentration has that uh, property that it suppresses the hindrances and for a while there's this kind of clarity that one can enjoy and experience. With concentration, especially a concentrated mindfulness where you're noticing moment by after moment after moment where there's you're staying in the present even on changing experience you then can have can experience uh, the next step in this progress of insight as it's laid out and just to to, to put a pause button, even those who go through the progress of insight, it's not usually as neat as one, two, three, four. You can jump around a bit, but the classical one from that concentration, uh, concentrated mindfulness, is um, you have a glimpse into the selfless nature of reality. And what you See, this is the insight into what's called nama rupa. Nama rupa, name and form, or mind and body. And instead of seeing this mind and body as me, you start seeing the components, uh, particularly expressed in the uh, as five aggregates. Although you might not even know the list of five aggregates, but you start seeing that we're not who we thought we were. Five aggregates are form, this body form, feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, perception, seeing things and and recognizing them through memory, mental formations, and consciousness. And you start seeing this insight into Nama Rupa is like you see... You see the kind of um, you see this body and mind from a kind of mechanistic way. That's the only way I, that's coming out for me to describe it right now. Instead of um, mm, let's see, I can remember um, practicing an IMS and doing walking meditation, and then all of a sudden thinking, oh. I think I want to go to, uh, I need to go to the bathroom. You know, I'd go to the bathroom and then I'd do that and then I'd go back to walking meditation. And it occurred to me, it wasn't, oh, I'm going to go to the bathroom. It was in the body, there was a kind of um, feeling of pressure in my bladder, on this bladder that was filling up, following its own laws, that all of a sudden said, hmm. Time to go to the bathroom. You know. And then I had this thought, oh, I think I'll go to the bathroom. And then I went to the bathroom, did, did what I did. Oh, now it's time to go back. And it was all of a sudden I started noticing through the day everything that I did that I thought I was doing 
because I wanted to do it, was just this interaction of mind-body, mind-body, thoughts giving rise to particular movement, energy in the body giving rise to particular thoughts, and the, uh, the romanticism of this form it was just kind of seen through, very absurd, especially when you say, oh, bathroom, okay. Um, it was, oh, we are just following these laws. We are this mind-body process following its own laws, and there's no agent behind it that's kind of making the whole thing happen. Does that make sense? No. Whatever sticks, let it stick. Whatever doesn't, let it go. Um, so that's, that is, when you have that kind of experiential, firsthand experience, it's like, oh, wow, now I kind of get it on a, on a different level. That insight into nama rupa, or mind and body, and then that leads to um, the next step in this map, um, insight into cause and effect. That is, everything is arising from causes and conditions. One moment conditions the next moment, conditions the next moment, conditions the next moment. And again, there's no one who's behind it running the show. It's all so completely impersonal and selfless. And again, it's another perspective of, oh, wow, there's, you know, there's nobody home doing this. Of course, there is, there is this me that I relate to, it's me, but there's nobody who is running the show. Okay? Insight into Namarupa, into mind-body, insight into cause and effect. Then as you deepen the meditation in this classical style and you see things in a, in a much more refined way, the solidity of things starts to break up right before your eyes or before your awareness. So for instance, as, as the, as the mindfulness becomes really strong and the concentration becomes sharper and sharper over a period of time. If, you, if your karma is ripe or who knows why that happens. Some people have more facility than others. It's kind of mysterious. But uh, what would be one breath, one way of thinking of it? One would, what would be, oh, an in-breath can become... Many, 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 many moments of sensation, one after another, and that solidity of an in-breath. It's like looking at something under an electron microscope all of a sudden, or looking, looking at a drop of water under a, from a pond, and then you see there's a whole world in there. You know? And then you look at that through an electron microscope and you, you see you know, a whole other dimension. It's kind of like that the solidity of things starts to dissolve and you see everything 
arising and passing in a moment-to-moment level um, on a whole different dimension than is available in normal waking consciousness. And seeing that arising and passing is a huge shift in perspective. It's like looking under that microscope, seeing, oh, wow, I didn't, I didn't realize. That is sometimes called a mini-nibbana, or mini-nirvana, or the forerunner of nibbana, because you are directly seeing through the solidity of experience. And at this point, it's a very, not only um, a revelatory experience, it's very um, pleasurable. All the factors of enlightenment are very strong. Mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, rapture, uh, calm, concentration, equanimity. They're all just humming along. And wow, okay, and you see so clearly, okay. That's the this this stage of arising and passing. There's a real, there's a kind of shift that comes from that. The caveat is it's easy to identify with your experience how cool it is. I'm getting to be such a good meditator. I'm really seeing something here. Far out. Wow. I've been putting my work in and it is happening, baby. Right? That is the, the, the stage that not everybody goes through, but it's very easy to, to just be enthralled by where you're at. And this is called the corruptions of insight, where all the, all the groovy things that you've been working so hard to experience become just another way that you identify and get uh, reify the ego. Okay. Um, so if you've got some decent guidance, you know, then somebody might say, oh, this is just one more thing to let go of yeah. and keep on practicing. The next insight in this progress of insight, instead of seeing the arising and passing of things, you start to become more tuned in to the passing of things. Everything, it, there's no solidity anywhere. It's like it's all dissolving right before you. As soon as you, as you see something, it's like it's gone. And you just start to notice, again, this is not everybody, but this is not uncommon that this happens. You just start to notice how insubstantial everything is. And this is the insight, the stage of dissolution, where everything is dissolving in front of you and inside of you, wherever you look. This is not as much fun. (laughs) And in fact, what it leads, what it can lead to, 
in the classical model is um, you start to get a little afraid. There's no place to stand. And you go through a few different stages. Fear, because you're not seeing that the fear is empty as well, and it seems so real. It, there's no, it's like you're in, on quicksand. Fear, terror. The next stage is sometimes called misery or loathing, where you just say, ooh, yuck. Oh, my God. This is too much. This is sometimes called, in classical parlance, the rolling up the mat stage, (laughs) where you just want to roll up your sitting cushion and say, I think I've had enough, thank you. And, um, but you got to keep on going. And then you see through the insubstantiality of that as well. That leads to the next stage in this progress of insight, which sometimes is translated as disgust. You're just so disgusted with the whole thing. But the more, and I've talked about this here, I talk about it a little bit in the Awakening Joy, when I'm talking to Buddhists about Awakening Joy. Um, This is uh, the stage called Nibbida, N-I-B-B-I-D-A, which sometimes is translated as disgust, but more accurately is translated as disenchantment, where you have, have broken the spell of that, which enchants you. Disenchantment for the aggregates with, in this mind and body or the ones out there that seem so enthralling. You just see, oh my goodness, you know, what was I so mesmerized by? And that disenchantment is, a, is really another profound piece where there's not that, it doesn't, things don't hold sway over you. And you just really want to be free. This leads to the, what's called the stage of the urge for deliverance. Which then um, balances out into a deep experience of equanimity. Where you stop the struggle and you stop trying to get anywhere, and there is just an acknowledgement, oh, this is how it is. It's like this. And that's sometimes called high equanimity. And in that high equanimity, that space of deep allowing for, for everything to be as it is, as you're seeing on that subatomic or very... Uh, um, very profound new level and there's a relaxation into it, that equanimity can be experienced and that is the precursor to awakening, to the experience of nibbana or freedom, which in the classical model in this Burmese way, what Vimalo got his certificate for, 
sometimes the there can be a cessation of consciousness where for a little while you're not around and when you and that can be a transforming experience it's not the only way to become free, have that enlightenment experience, but it's one in the classical sense. And you come back and you realize, whoa, something just happened. Um, And sometimes people say, well, how do you know if you're not around? (laughs) I I remember sitting with with this one Burmese uh, master who uh, was asked that question and he said, uh, it's a good analogy. You know, you know sometimes you don't have a good night's sleep? Yeah. And sometimes you have a really good night's sleep. We all know what it's like when we've had a really good night's sleep. Right? But you weren't around for the sleep. You just knew you had a good night's sleep. And then he gave the analogy. He said, imagine having the best night's sleep and multiplying it by a thousand, you know, that sounded pretty good to. Yeah, okay. Anyway, that doesn't always happen, but there can be this classic cessation of consciousness, which can be a hallmark for opening up to the, the unconditioned. So now we get to the, the the stages of enlightenment. Just have a few minutes to go through. Uh, there are four stages of enlightenment in this classical Theravadan model, and that the Buddha talks about in the uh, in the suttas. The first stage is called entering the stream, stream enterer, in, in Pali, Sotapanna. The second stage is called once returner, third stage, non-returner, and fourth stage, arhat, fully enlightened being. And what they have to do, uh, what they are about, they correspond to ten different, mm, classically what are called fetters, ten fetters or defilements where we get confused and lost fall away with each stage. The first stage, that Sotapanna, first three fetters fall away. One, belief in a sense of self. You kind of see through the game, oh, I'm not who I think I am. Doesn't mean you don't forget but you've really seen for yourself, oh, it's not the way I thought. So belief in the sense of self, doubt about the path, that there is a path to freedom and you are on it, and belief in rites and rituals, that you will, you know, if you light the right incense, or do the right puja, or say the right, or do have some kind of intercession from, from the gods, belief in rites and rituals or superstitions, that 
you realize that's not what's going to get you free. That's not, gonna, that's not about what your, where your salvation is. It's you keeping on seeing for yourself. So those first th- three things fall away at the first stage. Now, the really good thing about the first stage of enlightenment in this classical model is that supposedly you are on an ir- uh, irrevocable, irrevocable um, course to awakening. That you are guaranteed <laughs> seven lifetimes or less you will be fully enlightened. Like the big brass ring, right? So a lot of, if you read the island, Amaro, he says, you know, he, he, talk, he has like four, the last four chapters are about Sotapanna. Like if you can go get there, you know, you can't backslide, right? Again, this is the, supposedly in the classical texts. The next stage, the once-returner, uh, uh, Sakaragami, you are um, you're guaranteed either enlightenment in this lifetime or you'll only come back once in human form. Other than that, you're going to be in the, the deva realms. And with that, the next two fetters are greatly attenuated of desire and aversion. There's a a, a real, you don't eliminate them, but there's a major dropping away of desire and aversion with the second stage of enlightenment. With the third stage, which is called anagami, or non-returner, where you're not coming back in the human realm, you'll either become enlightened or you're in the, uh, in the uh, c- celestial realms, uh, Brahma realms, then those two, desire and aversion, are eliminated. That's pretty cool. And the and the uh, and the next and a f- and, s- and the next two of the um, fetters, which are desire for existence or or a des- or a desire for um, um, uh, um, non-existence, which sometimes is also meaning desire to experience the jhanas or the the uh, immaterial jhanas. That is lessened. And then the final stage, or arhat, fully enlightened being, where this is your last time around on the wheel, though those, la- those sixth and seventh material and non-material uh, existence fall away, as do the last three fetters of conceit, and conceit meaning any kind of comparing, any kind of seeing yourself in relationship to others, the judging mind, that's completely gone 
the comparing mind completely gone, the conceit of I am, it's called mana. Restlessness, which is looking anywhere outside of yourself for any, like there's no other grass being greener. It's like, oh, this is enough right where I am. And the final fetter of ignorance, where you don't forget, where you see in a continual way, this is a fully enlightened being, you don't forget the game. You don't get lost at all in that sense of self. Then you're completely free. Done is what needed to be done, as the Buddha said. So that's the lay of the land. Now just notice how you're feeling now. You know? It's like, oh my God, I'm just trying to know that I'm, I'm breathing here. You know? I just put this out. We might as well kind of you know, see what it says. And hopefully it's, it's an inspiration to you to know those stages of insight can definitely be experienced. People experience them uh, you know, on retreats at Spirit Rock. Sometimes longer retreats can uh, help be more conducive to that. You can do that. And you can see in a very profound way through that sense of self. Um, usually it takes, at least in this meditative approach, it takes um, so a very supportive environment and very sincere practice that's not about gaining. That's the tricky part. If you say, aha, I'm going to really make it happen, guaranteed it's not going to happen. It only happens when you throw yourself into the moment and just let the mindfulness do its own thing. Where you come with the deepest, sincere, intention, you put in, you show up as best you can, and the mindfulness does its own thing. Any kind of wanting gets in the way. You can be inspired, but not in a grasping mode. So that's this path. Next week, I want to talk about, I'm sorry there's not time for questions uh, now, but next week, I want to look at a whole other way that doesn't have to do with concentrating your mind and get into getting into particularly exotic mind states that is just as valid and just as profound an awakening that can be available as this. But it's good to know there's something that happens when you practice mindfulness. So I think we'll have to stop here. Thanks for your attention. We'll just take a a short uh, loving kindness. If you just stay for a moment, we'll we'll finish. Just as you're sitting here, notice what goes on for you now. Is it excitement? Is it discouragement? Is it inspiration? Is it wonder? And let your experience be just however it is. All of them are just fine. And be the awareness that's noticing. Rather than saying, oh, I wonder if I'll be the awareness that's noticing what your experience is right now.
because that's what it keeps coming back to. And noticing, being that awareness, just uh, to appreciate and celebrate the fact that something in this mind-body process really is interested in waking up. That somehow there has been a call that you've heard. And bring some kind thoughts to this mind and body that you call you, may I truly awaken and be liberated. May I open up to all the love that's inside and share it well. May I find deep peace and the highest happiness. May I learn to hold all of my confusion with compassion and love. And then to extend out everybody here to all beings everywhere, may all beings be happy and peaceful May they all see clearly and share their love well. May they be free. And may our coming here together be for the benefit of all beings everywhere. Hope that wasn't too much of a of a back in class uh, lecture, and uh, maybe stir things up a bit. Have a good week. See you next week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit Dharma Seed dot org slash donate.